What up, Pooch Muffins? What up, what up? This is uh, the first NPR-esque episode we're doing because both of us can't really raise our voices, can we? Yes, we are in close quarters with other people, and so we can't yell. But uh, this is our first sponsored episode. It's sponsored by the president of the Sydney Sweeney Fan Club. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I got to say, I, I, I hopped on board the uh, Euphoria hype train and um it doesn't it doesn't disappoint i'm i'm actually liking that show quite quite a bit it's a dumb show don't waste your time <laughs> it's I'm, I'm kind of switching between between euphoria and and uh what's this other one called it's a bit more of a fantasy based one called shadow and bone it's on netflix it's, it, that one i highly recommend are you trying to die with your v card <laughs> i'm watching well, hey, bel air yeah. which is a uh Kind of a dark oh, yeah. remake of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh-huh. with a, a less dorky Carlton and a more badass Uncle Phil. But generally, I like the uh, I like the premise. It's interesting, and it's being done with Will Smith's permission, I guess, or his blessing, because he was an ex- executive oh, producer. Yeah. So I know they're not going to completely botch it, but it's um, yeah, it, it is a really different take on Fresh Prince of Bel Air. But I like it. It's really cool. I'm about three episodes. So, so it's out. not just a rerun. Right. No, no, no. I thought I thought it would be like a um, like a silly remake, but it, look, it's it's the same base premise, but um, mm-hmm. they changed it up quite a bit. Like it's very dark, uh, dramatic. Um, Interesting. Ob- you know, it's not a sitcom. It, it's obviously like much more expensive to shoot. Just you know, the, the complexity of the sets and all that. But um, it's right. it's a really professional show. It's really good. Interesting. I might. Well, what's it on? Like what streaming platform? Uh, HBO. Oh, nice. I actually mm-hmm. like to watch Euphoria. I had to get the uh, HBO Max subscription. Can you not tell like, me no to watch that stuff, show? So. It sucks. <laughs> That's weird. Everyone I know here watches it for some reason. Well, you're, the people um, you hang out, with, hang out with also, you mean generally suck. I've been with them. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, fa- founders, founders are not fun. Um, no. But... Um, Another part is no, another part of this is you're in uh, you're not in Kuwait, are you? No, I am in Istanbul. Nice. Not, Const- not Constantinople, Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> AKA Byzantium. Byzantium. And you're not too far away from the uh, Byzantine monument, right? Is that what you call it? What? The um the Galata Tower. Oh yeah, yeah, but that wasn't uh, it wasn't Byzantine. Oh, was it really? No, 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 no. It was a uh, Italian. There used to be an tr- Italian trading outpost here called. Uh, oh, actually, it was called Galata, but I think it was like there were Genoan merchant marines or whatever who set up shop like literally across the Golden Horn from what was then, um, you know, Eastern Roman Byzantium. Yeah, and oh, then I they allied because I thought yeah, yeah, and then they then they allied with uh, you know uh, Mahmoud Al Fatih and uh, oh yeah, overthrew uh, Justinian and and you know they smashed open the walls with the cannons, which True. is why the the Ottoman coat of arms has cannons on it, oh. and they've held it since. Wow, because I thought I thought like. The history of that end was like it was Byzantine, and then Ottoman, and then 
like modern day Turkey. I didn't yeah, think it was Turkish that complex. Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But that's like, yeah, I, I wish I lived in a place with a history as complex as that, because I feel like just diving into it will take away so much of your free time. You are living way. in a place with a complex history, just not that ancient. True. Like it is, it is a fairly complex history, but do you know, yeah, do you know the I mean, giant Google uh, uh, server farm that you live next to? Oh, I do. Yeah. It's not that far away. You know what that building is? The Spruce Goose hangar, right? Right. Yeah. That was the hangar that Howard Hughes built and stored his Spruce Goose in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which was at yeah. the time the largest uh, I'm slowly, ever. Yeah. I'm slowly trying to like realize that, which is very interesting, which is um, Howard Hughes had a massive presence in like the LMU Playa Vista area because like, come to think of it like the the apartment complex that i stayed in was called runway for a reason so yeah because it was a runway yeah. literally but i mean yeah, yeah howard hughes was a, was a weird dude but uh, i'm going to use this as a segue into our topic but um so the spruce goose for a long time was one of the largest planes ever um i'm not sure when exactly it lost that title or that crown uh-huh. but in recent years the largest plane ever was something called the antonov 225 the oh, Antonov yeah, 225 is the single largest plane ever constructed, and it is used to move super heavy, super large cargo internationally. So if you need to deliver like fire trucks, you would deliver it using this plane. Um, unfortunately, the Antonov 225 um, had a semi-permanent base in Ukraine, and it is now sadly confirmed that the Russians destroyed it. Which, if you're an aviation nerd like me, is just sad. True. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I think the the one thing that I'm very sad at seeing with everything that's been going on is just how you know Ukraine's a fairly architecturally speaking, it's a very pretty place, and just seeing Mm -hmm. it in ruins and all that stuff, and especially all of its landmarks and feats kind of being destroyed is is a pretty sad thing. Kiev is is a thousand years old. Like literally, it's as old as London. True. Yeah. So my favorite dish is named after it. So I don't, although I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> chicken um, Kiev. Chicken Kiev. Yeah. Or, or it's, Cordon Bleu. It's yeah, that has what, nothing to do with the country. <laughs> yeah. True. True. I just, I'm, I'm just hungry at this point. Um, no, but no, I mean, I think honestly, with, with everything that's been going on, um, there's that over looming like overbearing or like looming theme which is you know both of us have been kind of keeping an eye on it which is the whole situation going on in ukraine right um you know as expected the the newfound respect that i mentioned last episode for ukrainians is still there because they're kind of turning into these pure badasses and putting everything on the line um what's been very interesting is that their president president Zelensky, and then even um, Vladimir and not sure what his brother's name is, Klitschko, who used to be like boxing champions. And they were one of them was the mayor of Kiev, um, have now dropped the suits and dropped like the pens and are picking up weapons and fatigues and kind of becoming true leaders. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm very surprised at that because that, that wasn't something that would uh, that's not the, a type of behavior I would have expected in 2022. Western um, politician who would otherwise just split. Yeah, pretty much. And then, and then when they were offered to split by 
some US force, they were like, we need guns, we need ammunition, not a ride. Yeah, this, this is not Afghanistan here. that fell in 15 minutes. Yeah, pretty much. So, so the fact that there is a fight going on right now is actually, you know, yep. a, a respectable so, I mean, thing. For for context, you and I have obsessed over um, previous wars, specifically World War II. So prior to COVID, at one point, we wanted to tour Europe and just do like a World War II tour. Oh, yeah. Um, so you know, a, a little while ago, I went to, uh, I was in Paris and I went to the Eiffel Tower. You can imagine all the, you know, Instagramming couples checking out the Eiffel Tower. And I'm sitting there like standing, like Googling, it's like, is this where Hitler stood? And like, huh. <laughs> Like I'm just interested in the that's World a, War II history of Paris. Yeah, yeah, that's actually it's funny. A, a bit of a tangent. I've been going to like museums a lot recently. I'm going to like the Cold War Museum here in Culver City at the Getty Villa, and um, everywhere I go, it's just couples, and it's just me going like, "Oh shit, this is pretty dark stuff." Yeah, it's like just, they're making um, out next to like you know Goya's paintings. Like, dude, he's ripping a man apart. Why? Why are you kissing? <laughs> just yeah i'm just i'm just here for the silence and the history nothing else yeah well, um, we, we brought up the ukraine thing for a particular reason yeah yeah because like you know as you mentioned like we do we did pay a lot of attention to like world war ii and a lot of the details that happened in it we kind of we dove into it enough to kind of draw a lot of parallels from it um between world war ii and a lot of things that have been going on with this invasion but I think what kind of stood out to me as well is there's also been a lot of modern elements to this one. And I'm not talking about the obvious ones like newer weapons, cyber attacks, and misinformation. Um, <clears throat> what I am talking about specifically are two things. So one is how big tech corporations are actually playing a massive role in this war. And some of the decisions they're making is are dealing some like serious damage to, to the countries. And then two basically how an interconnected global economic system is being used as a weapon against one side of this conflict. So following the general structure that we kind of followed in the past, splitting splitting those up into two things, and let's dive into the first one. Um, so the first part, like a very new aspect of this war is that, as I mentioned, big tech platforms are kind of taking a stand and actually fighting in their own respect um one of the sides in this conflict so for example i'm sure this has been on a lot of your timelines and even on news articles but um platforms like facebook twitter and tiktok are now restricting access to their platform from um russian state-backed media to reduce the amount of propaganda and pro-russia content on there um bringing things a little more physical um companies like microsoft apple i think intel that was a name that was thrown into this and a few very large game development companies um, have totally halted sales and access of their products to russia and actually before we started recording i was scrolling through reddit and i saw that paypal also just did the same thing so you know paypal is a massive business and you know russia is also a massive customer of paypal so the fact that that happened um is going to do some serious serious damage to, the, to to those countries or to that country specifically um and I mean, the, the way I like to think of it is like, it definitely deals a blow in the information age because you're restricting content and platforms and outreach, but these companies have even gone far enough to restrict the monetization of existing content on their platform. So, you know, but can I just say yeah. how incredibly amazing it is to get live tweets and TikToks from the battlefield? 
honestly, yeah, I've, I've, I usually like it goes over my head, but I have to stop myself and think about it sometimes. Cause like I've seen multiple TikToks of like some random trend music with like normal hashtags and it's a paratrooper being dropped in a wheat field. And it's just, this isn't, this isn't normal, but it's cool. But it's not let's, normal. let's forget the potential for psyops here because you know, not everything there is truly organic content. Let's be honest. True. But, but still the fact that you are getting live video and it's like being synced to some dumb dance and a song <laughs> and you know, actually it's like the invasion of Mariupol or whatever, but it, yeah. it's, I, I, you, you can't help, but gawk looking at it. Like you can't believe it's happening. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's literally like, what if TikTok was around World War II? Like, would you would you see like people on aircraft carriers like going into Iwo Jima or something? It's very, it's weird. And I, I, what makes me curious about it specifically is just how it's going to be recorded and like studied with history. Like, are you just going to have databases and APIs of history or museums to show TikToks of Russian soldiers in Ukraine? We'd be able um, to YouTube the conflict in the same way that you know we're watching digitized versions of old newsreels from Germany in '45. True. Yeah. And like, you know, like these Twitter accounts are going to be set up like live tweeting the Russian invasion. They're just going to be retweeting old tweets because they all existed. It's very, yeah, it's weird when you think of it that way, but there I is think a Twitter the one account, thing, by the way, that is tweeting World War II as if it actually happened. So like it's up to 1942 now and I watched it. I started it a couple of years ago and oh. it's literally like just like live tweeting the events as if somebody were, you know, running uh, like a, a U.S. military uh, news account on Twitter in the 40s. Really? Yeah, it's it's really it's really cool, like the way it's covered. Um, I might, yeah, I, I think, I, might ask I think, for that. yeah, I'll send it to you later. But what, what, one thing that I've uh, noticed mm -hmm. is, um, uh, you know, it, to a degree, the governments don't control the entire narrative anymore. So, two thousand three, the invasion of Iraq. I mean, I was 12, 13 years old at the time, and I remember watching it on TV, and the whole thing just felt like a video game. This is the Abrams tank. It does whatever miles an hour. This is how far its range is, and you know, they talk about it literally like it's a video game, like they're presenting a video game. Yeah. And uh, the, the coverage has this distinct feeling of looking not real. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an actual world event, like it's staged. Yeah. It, not staged in the conspiracy theorist sense, but the fact that it doesn't feel <laughs> yeah. like they're commenting on things that are actually happening. It's so divorced from reality. And now we get live TikToks from soldiers who literally may not be alive by the time you see the TikTok. Yeah. No, exactly. And and sadly enough, not to get too dark, but I have seen those too. Like there's there's been TikToks of people in like in convoys on roads and random places, and you check the comments, it's like R.I.P.O.P. Just like dude's gone. Um, oh, yeah, the, the the Chechens. Like, you know, they yeah, made the, that yeah, the, the Chechen video convoy. of the guys like in, in in the convoy and they're all saying hello to the camera. And the first comment is like they died an hour after this, like they were taken up by a drone. Yeah, yeah. That's I can't wrap my head around that. Like it's it's adding a new type of like desensitivity to to war. Like because what you mentioned yeah. in two thousand three was one thing, but then you know having something, having someone's like a soldier's death basically spun up into a meme is actually very very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like a uh, Russian warship. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which, by the way, those those thirteen guys, the Ukrainian ship that actually said that. Yeah. Um, they're still alive. They're just like mm -hmm. caught. They were captured by Russia, but they're, they're, they're still there. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah so, yeah. But but going back to the point. So, with with all these big tech companies kind of restricting and and demonetizing a lot of like Russian state backed content or pro Russia content. I mean, 
I don't know if you have any parallels you can draw, but I've never seen an all like we've never been or seen an all out invasion in the information age. But the fact that corporations are able to do damage to countries, the economies of countries is something we haven't really seen before. Um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, okay. I, yes and no. I mean, we have not seen it in, in relatively recent history. Like, you know, the idea of a company taking down a government. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in somewhat recent history, there's kind of Chiquita Banana versus like all of Central America and convincing the U.S. government to basically overthrow all of them. Uh, that's um, a good point. Yeah. There's that, you know, direct overthrow at the behest, at the behest of um, um, a corporation. Oh, wait, there's also, uh, uh, what is it, Anglo-Iranian oil or whatever it was called in the overthrow of Mossadegh in the, in the 50s. Oh, yeah, before it became BP, right? Yeah, it was Kermit Roosevelt and some MI6 guys who basically overthrew the company because BP asked, right? Um, overthrew the country. Um, okay, this is going to get filed with like the tinfoil hat episodes, but... <laughs> True. Actually, way back when, you know, the Dutch East India Company, which at one point was like, the biggest company in the world, like it had a uh, inflation adjusted uh, valuation of around seven or $8 trillion. Um, wow. So that company was so huge. It basically had like an internal court system and prisons that it used to run. So kind of like Apple, really? but yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you leak an iPhone, but oh, God. Um, uh, yeah, it, it had like an internal court system. It had prisons, it had like appeal systems. It was insane. But the Dutch East India Company at one point used to literally just smash the Indian coast to pieces, like to rubble, just bomb it with cannon fire because either they didn't get their way during a trade dispute or quite literally just to announce their arrival at a new port. Um, Just to make it clear that like, you know, we are going to win whatever argument we have and we will take what we want. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Actually, now that we say that there is, I think there's quite a bit of quite a bit of uh, history of uh, corporations and slaving countries. That is, it kind of makes sense, but I, I might take a couple of pages from Dutch East India's book. Like next time I walk into a new place, I'll just like knock over a vase. Like I've arrived. Yeah. You know. Like sparklers on my shoulders and everything. Literally um, before they would pull into port, they would just hit it with cannon fire, like everywhere except the exact point that they wanted to pull up to. That way nobody ever thought to greet them with aggression. Jesus. And by the way, they were doing this with people who had only ever used like, you know, melee weapons, bladed weapons, that kind of thing. They weren't using, they, they don't, they weren't using guns against them. So I'd be very, yeah. Like, you know, they see a cannon. It would be the equivalent of today, me, me walking up to you and then actually firing a laser gun. Just like your mind is blown. Yeah. Like we can't mess yeah. with this guy. True. I mean, I'd be, this, this can be its whole, a whole new episode, but I'd be curious to see how that company fell. If we can start like studying, startups that have failed which is to some degree the original idea of the show um i i would love to look at dutch east india sometime but i think i I think i think it fell because they invested in enron (laughs) maybe maybe they just uh they filled their balance sheet with uh with shit coins that's that's what happened yeah Um, yeah i mean were they called tulips back then i don't know anyways yeah um but so, so time traveling to the present, I mean, to, to Silicon Valley, it, it, I, can't, I think it, it puts them in a very, very interesting situation because, you know, Silicon Valley initially, or specifically the social platforms that make up what, what is known as Silicon Valley, 
they were once known as like this neutral force that protected free speech and you know made sure that everyone had their say and you had the whole policy side of it with section 230 and all those different things that came out but it now seems like they're they are taking sides and silencing an opinion albeit a shitty opinion but but an opinion and an agenda regardless so in terms of parallels again we've definitely seen this before so we've seen the silencing when it comes to political figures in the us not to name names and drag us further off topic but there is a thought experiment that I kind of ran um, while reading the articles about this. That was how things would be different if those companies weren't publicly owned and and had massive figureheads that went to like congressional hearings almost every day or every week, but instead if they were still an early stage company. I think that would be a very interesting thing thing to think about because say for example that like you and I were founders of a Series A. Um, stage or level social media startup, and we had a Russian propaganda problem. Um, what kind of things would we say, or like, how would investors' opinions get into this? Advisors' opinions get into this? How, like, specifically their political leanings? I think well, before we share our opinions, that, this episode brought to you by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Use code. Know, there- Pooches <laughs> for free potatoes. I don't know. <laughs> Use code pooches for extremely, extremely, extremely discounted oil. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, there, there's a bit of an imperfect historical parallel. So, do you remember mm-hmm. Parler? Oh yeah, Parler. Yeah, Twitter yeah, it's clone, that. Right? It's that. Like, yeah, the Twitter clone that was basically a quote-unquote free speech platform. Blah blah for the yeah. far right, alt right neo-Nazi, whatever you call it. So it turns out they could really only operate so long as each of their vendors were willing to be a part of facilitating the discourse. So the company that ultimately pulled the plug on them was actually, even though Apple kicked them off the um, the app store, uh, I'm not sure Google ever did the same, but even if they did, you can sideload on Android. Um, and I know a lot of them ended up switching to Android for that, per- for that reason. Um, but Parler was killed by AWS. And then every other hosting service basically decided to can them. And uh, Parler yeah. ended up suing AWS uh, for access. And then AWS basically went to the court and with this giant printout of like, you know, ultra far right hate speech, like death war, death uh, threats and all kinds of absurd neo-Nazi crap and just went to the court saying like, hey, this all of this clearly violates our terms of service and we want no part of it. And that's why we kicked them off. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I think unless you are willing to rebuild literally your entire stack to start this startup, mm-hmm. sooner or later, somebody somewhere is going to try to kick you off the platform if you're just too far outside what is considered mainstream and normal. So as a series A or even seed stage startup, you're likely to build, um, you're likely to be built on a massive number of APIs and you know the, the political permission you get from each of those providers I mean, it's effectively dictated by the largest business whose products make up the most consequential API of your stack. And if that happens to be AWS, like if you cross Daddy Bezos, they will kill you. True. I think I think that's what I'm kind of noticing right now because, and and this is kind of putting putting the the engineering hat on, but um, a lot of the advice that I've gotten building something at a very early stage is everything that you think you're going to be pulling your hair out over outsource it, find a, find a third-party service or another API and, and figure out a way to put it in their hands and just integrate it into your product. Um, the most obvious yeah, example assuming, is... Assuming it's oh, yeah. not the product. 
Oh yeah, yeah, definitely assuming it's not the actual product itself. So the biggest example is payments. You know, you never want to worry about PCI compliance and me building a system that's secure enough that deals 300 checks to deal with credit card information. That's just the pain. So Stripe is available. Um, I've been meeting with a lot of startups recently, actually, that allow you to outsource um, permissions. So like role-based access control, um, searching, you have Elasticsearch, Algolia, um, every single aspect of a modern web platform um, can now be outsourced as another API, basically, right? Um, so, you know, to 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 us, it sounds like, okay, great. Like, sure, your costs are going up because you're starting to pay for all these subscription fees or whatever pricing models each of these businesses have. But um, there's a, you know, when you make the account, there's that one tiny checkbox that you just almost like muscle memory wise just fill in and it's just agreeing with their terms of service so god forbid you get to a point where you're so so massive and you violate one of their like algolia's terms of service so now everything that's searchable on your platform is like now gone right that's just a very concerning thing to think about yeah but you know thankfully it's very difficult to get deplatformed by doing relatively normal stuff like if you're one standard deviation outside of the norm i think the risk of getting deplatformed is not great if you're two or more standard deviations outside the norm then there is a very good chance they're going to slaughter you true true i think i i'm actually very curious to see if that's ever been quantified like since you mentioned standard deviations just yeah, how no, i mean i was, I was going to say like there isn't a, a histogram of textual data oh, yeah, so sooner i mean yeah you can make one true but could be a project um uh, no but, no, um, no you <laughs> could be a side project i'll just i'll just make another um dancing app i don't know um but um but yeah so so like th that's the kind of stuff that kind of ran through my head when i saw all these articles that are like you know these big tech corporations are are restricting access of something that people in Russia use for their daily work or daily lives. So like if I was a small business in Russia now, I can't use PayPal. I can't market myself on Twitter or Facebook. can't get any ad revenue from, from Google or YouTube. So it's like, those are like, if small businesses, for example, were the backbone of Russia, like their economy would have been tanking way faster than it already is, you know? Um, but the reason it's tanking so fast yeah. is the second part that we were kind of going to move over to, which is the, I guess the best way I can kind of put it is the leveraging of global systems as weapons to kind of deal economic damage on an aggressor. So, you know, if, mm -hmm. if I had money to bet on something, which I don't because I have a founder salary, I'd say the most Googled word in the past two weeks across the entire planet has got to be sanctions because yeah. that's all that I've been seeing on my timeline. So, you know, specifically kind of diving into them a little more, you know, the EU and the US have been unloading a series of sanctions, like tranches of sanctions, as Biden said, on pretty much everything comes out of Russia, as well as freezing the act, uh, the assets of oligarchs, um, disconnecting them from SWIFT, which was a massive, yeah. massive one. So for people who are unaware of what sanctions are, like functionally, mm -hmm. imagine the popular girl in your high school called you a creep. <laughs> And now that word creep is basically tattooed across your forehead and no one will ever touch you or come near you ever again, except the financial version. And that's a sanction. Interesting. So it's just a collection of countries going, 
No thanks. Of oh, this guy is dirty, and that's it. <laughs> He's got cooties, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So I mean, I'll go um, into more detail, but yeah, yeah, no. But I think so. So like, sanctions are one part. Then the freezing of the assets of the oligarchs, disconnecting them from SWIFT, turning them back from any Russian. Di- oh, turning back any Russian diplomat that comes their way. Um, those things combined have done immense damage the Russian economy and like the hope for these sanctions is that they dry up the coffers of like the, the Russian war machine, I guess. Um, and it seems like they have been doing that because the Russian economy is acting like the U S one in March, 2020. So kind of seeing that, seeing all that unfold, the main question I actually get from this is whether these global systems were set in place with punishments like this by design to kind of hold nations accountable if they do something stupid, like invade another country. Um, because there is the aspect of like, we want everyone to be interconnected and we want one global economy where everyone can benefit and like everyone contributes their best. Um, but I wonder if that was like a thought that ran through the minds of whoever was putting this together. That was like, if one of those countries decides to be an a-hole, then we'll just cut them off and then no, the entire world just is unable to do business with them. And that's going to kill them. Basically. A sanction, I mean, I'm, I'm really watering it down, but a sanction is effectively a mark and that marks presence on you makes any counterparty to anyone you ever deal with think that you are absolutely radioactive and walk away. So mm-hmm. I think one of the earliest forms of sanctions without them being called sanctions was actually enforced by the US uh, under Eisenhower on the UK. So in the 1950s, the UK had taken control of the Suez Canal. So you remember, okay, okay, so a little history. In the 1950s, after after something called Operation FF or Operation Fatfuck, literally, I'm not making that up. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Western intelligence overthrew Uh, uh, the king of Egypt. Okay. And it it was the free generals or the free commanders, whatever they called themselves, you know, Sadat and friends. Um, oh, right. you know, the, the, the army guys who took control of the country and basically still have control of the country up until now. Um, so, uh, you know, w- when they took control of Suez, the British thought, you know, we, we cannot possibly allow um, these nationalist generals to c- take control of the Suez Canal because you know how important the Suez Canal is to international trade, you know. Right. Yeah, but, well, I mean, think back to what happened when that ship got stuck sideways and what that did to international trade, right? Oh, true. So, yeah. You know, and so the UK was was very clear that they needed to get that canal under friendly hands, and uh, you know, basically they they took it. So, in order to get um, the UK to stop being so heavy-handed in the region, uh, the US wanted to make it clear that um, if you don't uh, give up control and give it back to Egypt under you know their control of Sinai, then we're going to dump your debt. And the effect of dumping someone's debt on the open markets, so a lot of British debt was held by the US. Mm-hmm. And if the US had dumped all that debt at once, what happens is the price would collapse because there's a massive spike in supply. And when prices collapse in bond markets, that causes your the yield of those bonds, the implied interest rate to soar. So it, it makes the borrowing cost incredibly high on new debt for that for the government. So that was kind of the, really the first kind of well-known example of a sanction but a sanction today basically is 
crafted and enforced by the country's Ministry of Finance, or in the case of the US, the Department of the Treasury. Mm -hmm. um, sanctions can be relatively mild, um, kind of like the US putting sanctions on India in the late 1990s after their successful nuclear test. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that sanction, okay, it hurt, the, it hurt the economy, but it didn't break India in half, right? right. Um, then again, sanctions can be you know, a, little, a little more than just mild. Like, you know, the mid-range would be banning state securities from being traded or held by some US investors, which again, makes your borrowing costs higher because your market is smaller, that kind of thing. Um, all the way to putting criminal liability on someone who even like contemplates a trade with an entity under sanctions. So for years, or at least recently, the most the blueprint for the most like devastating set of sanctions that a country was under was basically the Iranian sanctions that were in effect kind of prior to and immediately after the tearing up of what's called the JCPOA, which basically what, what we call the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, so I'm talking about the Obama era Iranian nuclear deal, not the one they're discussing right now. So right. look this is the importance of the international banking system most of the most of international trade is settled in dollars it's roughly 80 percent and when you're using the united states dollar you are under united states jurisdiction by extension because you still need access to the u.s clearinghouse to clear dollar transactions that kind of a thing <clears throat> so for example when you import something from somewhere you don't really pay the company you're importing from directly you go to a bank, you get something called an LOC, a letter of credit. Um, and basically it says that the bank is going to pay the company and not you. So the credit risk that the exporter is taking is on the bank, not on you. So they don't really have to look into you and your ability to pay. They look at the bank. And of course, there's more information on a bank. The bank is kind of the trusted financial intermediary, makes the trade a little easier. And that's the, that's the case with like the overwhelming majority of companies, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, the Iranian sanctions made it impossible for you to get an LOC to import anything from Iran. I see. And they also made LOCs issued by an Iranian bank basically unacceptable at the threat of getting disconnected from SWIFT. So, and again, if you, if you get disconnected from SWIFT, and this is something that was discussed in the, the framework of the um, Russian sanctions, getting disconnected means that your commercial bank is roughly as useful as your childhood piggy bank. Because the it bank can't is basically issue now. any financial instruments. It cannot trade in any financial instruments. It cannot give you a line of credit. It cannot give you a letter of credit. It cannot give you your debit card doesn't work. It basically it kills the bank. So so here's a question too. Like if you get disconnected from Swift, you're unable to to deal with any financial instruments because you've been disconnected from every single market. Um does that mean that okay, say if I'm in Russia, I heard that Russian banks were disconnected from Swift and I go to pull my money out of it. Do you get that 1929-esque run on a bank? Like, does that make it possible? Yes, and that's also already happened. So oh. there, there's a fairly large bank called Sparebank, uh, S-B-E-R Bank. Um, it's pretty big. It's uh, a huge chunk of it is actually owned by the Russian government. Um, large chunks of it are actually owned by pension programs all over the place. And they had quite a presence in Europe, including the UK. I mean, I'm 100% sure if you've been to London, you've seen their logo some places. Um, like, right. you know, they're, they're around and they're involved in certain things like construction finance and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So spare bank, um, was trading. I, I know I'm going to quote the numbers wrong. I haven't looked them up before, but there was something like 14, 15 pounds a share oh. prior to the invasion. 
I think they're going for around two or three pence now. Wow. Because of the run on the bank and the fact that they've been disconnected from every market that they used to operate in. Yeah. And that bank has effectively collapsed. Um, Interesting. This is happening with a number of other Russian companies. I want to see where is Look Oil right now? I'm going to let's check this out. Yeah. Okay. So Look Oil. Can't find it, but what, what I do know is that um, mm -hmm. sanctions are not one set um, kind of set of con financial consequences. So Russian sanctions went a step further than, and they're getting further than the Iranian ones ever went. So basically, they can make you criminally liable for quite literally doing any business within a mile of a Russian person or entity or dealing in rubles or whatever. One thing that's happening now is so Russian oil, by the way, is still not totally under the framework of most of the sanctions. So most countries can still buy Russian crude. Um, and Shell actually recently announced that they bought Russian crude in order to, uh, you know, they had, you know, petrol and, and diesel contracts that they needed to deliver on. And they're still technically not under, not under sanction, but there are some refiners out there who are refusing to take the crude for fear of being hit by sanctions that are still not in effect. So they're just, it's its the fear of the potential of criminal liability for having dealt with Russian crude. So as of yeah. right now, Russian, Russian crude is still legal to buy. Um, mm -hmm. And there is talk in the White House that, they're, that they may ban Russian crude and that will truly break the back of the beast. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, um, yeah, so, so Russian sanctions are going quite the distance. So here's the thing. Right now, most of the enforcement burden and historically even has fallen on the banks. But as of late, um, even people who are outside the banking sphere are disconnecting from Russia just for fear of falling under some sanction framework that they don't currently know of. So people are calling right now on like Coca-Cola and McDonald's to bow out. Ikea has basically left. Um, uh -huh. Some of the more devastating sanctions are, in, are, are, are connected to you know, the logistical aspect of things. So Maersk, one of the largest Danish... Um, you know, shipping companies. Mm -hmm. um, they basically said that we're no longer going to port at Russian ports. Um, the other thing is, oh, here's here's another one: insurance sanctions. So, in order to dock your ship at any port, the port will typically require you to have insurance. If you don't have insurance, they they'll tell you to go away, and that's standard at any port anywhere in the world. Okay. Um, it's kind of like driving your car; you can't drive it without insurance because mm -hmm. you know your tanker slams into the port, and you know all their money's gone. So. You need to sure. be insured one way or another. So insurance companies are now saying that if you are going to dock at a Russian port, we will not insure you. So the shipping company does not take the risk of docking there anymore. Right. Um, so that's, you know, the thing is, these things are being tracked by various startups, including Flexport, by the way, because Flexport, by the way, has, has really come into the, the, the limelight because the CEO has had a lot of uh, very super insightful commentary as to what's happening to the international, um, you know, supply lanes and supply chains and, and, and transport and, you know, changes in maritime law and all of that. And like, there's more that's happened in the last couple of years and that's happened in the decades before. So everyone needs to hear from the guy now, you know, how sanctions kind of factor into his job into how Flexport works. 
Well, for starters, I'm pretty sure they're disengaged from a lot of Russian crap. True. Not that I know them personally or anything, but just an educated guess. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so you know, startups working in the financial world are going to have to either disconnect or do some extra, extra KYC AML type stuff, uh, and and probably keep a much more expensive uh, attorney on retainer to deal with, um, you know, what used to be just run of the mill Russian work, and of course. Everyone thinks that you can evade sanctions with crypto, and that's not exactly true. Interesting, because I would have thought, because I know the the two points on that is like Coinbase said they weren't going to be restricting any new signups or new existing accounts um, coming from Russia. But then, yeah, the 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 one thing that kind of stood out to me when people brought up the crypto solution for avoiding sanctions is it's not really a location based thing. You just have these wallets, and they're not stored in a specific country. So how how would you be unable to avoid sanctions with using crypto? Well, here's the thing. If I'm sanctioned and you want to, you know, buy something from me, you can't do it through a bank because the bank is going to see my name on a sanctions list and then not process the transaction and then probably call the mm-hmm. cops on you. But mm-hmm. with Bitcoin is if I gave you my Bitcoin address, you can send me Bitcoin and the, and the transaction would be considered settled, right? Mm-hmm. And on the logistical side of things, nobody's going to really know I sent anything to anyone because I can set up an LLC or use a fake name and send it to some you know throwaway address that you can pick it up from after delivery has been made. Like there's a lot of ways to get around that. But here's the thing: for me to acquire Bitcoin, especially if I were a, a country and I needed to move amounts that a country would need to move, it's this is a public ledger. It's fairly impossible for me to hide the fact that I just bought five billion dollars in Bitcoin. Oh right. Um, you know, it would require a lot of like, you know, imagine Bitcoin tumblers within tumblers within tumblers. And even then the FBI has gotten actually, the FBI specifically has gotten pretty good at kind of finding the data and tracing the money like they did with a couple, like, you know, Bitfinex and, and some of these other mm-hmm. hack criminals. Right. Um, so yeah, there is a bottleneck of how do you convert fiat to crypto? When you're within the crypto world, then yeah, you can pretty much evade sanctions pretty easily, but how do you convert enough fiat into crypto? Which begs the question, has Russia already stockpiled enormous amounts of Bitcoin? I don't know. Um, But here's the thing. So crypto exchanges recently, and there's been an opinion piece penned by CZ of Binance, crypto exchanges are saying publicly that we will comply with any sanctions. In other words, if you have money on an exchange, that exchange is obviously a custodial account. You don't own your private keys and therefore the exchange can freeze them in order to comply with sanctions laws, right? Mm-hmm. Um, assuming you don't have it in a hard wallet or a, soft, or a software wallet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but as of now, uh, a lot of them have not actually received uh, orders from the government to actually freeze their custodial accounts of people originating from a particular country. So if you're from Russia, you can still buy Bitcoin. And a lot of ordinary Russians, by the way, who have nothing to do with this disaster, um, want to buy Bitcoin in order to send you know money to family abroad or you know settle their own personal payments because the financial system has completely failed them because it's crippled under sanctions. But um, yeah, I just I think I lost my train of thought, but. I, I don't um, I, I don't think crypto can totally be used to evade sanctions because as of today the crypto is not so widespread 
that it's impossible to get it, that it's impossible to trace people's earnings. Like, you know, that, that same Bitcoin has not been transacted anywhere near as much as any particular dollar. And so the, the these pathways are still somewhat clear and the government can still deduce using the public ledger who spent what and where. Right. Yeah, I think I think the very interesting part about that is like the, the fact that you can evade any sort of sanctions, i.e. consensus that this one person should or one nation should not be dealt with. It, I, I wouldn't kind of label it as a shortcoming of crypto. Like I, I honestly think it, if anything, it's it's a good thing because that means that that other per, the person being sanctioned or the nation being sanctioned truly does not have a way to avoid, you know, financial damage or economic damage unless they change their ways or or reach some sort of compromise. And my like my guess to my initial thing would kind of be like, yeah, the, all these sanctions and all these disconnections from interconnected global systems have been um, so far like have been detrimental to Russia's economy and people are starting to question when these when it's ever going to recover whether any of the businesses are going to come back anything like that basically but my my what if question to all of this just out of pure curiosity is just whether we're going to see sort of a big tech effect where nations or even individuals are kind of cut off from global financial systems for unpopular opinions and to say that to kind of clarify that a little bit is i'm not trying to ask where the line is for things because the answer is always somewhere the line stops somewhere of course but yeah. and, and and that place of course is figured out by common sense you know you want well, yes but here's the thing when you talk about a financial fintech provider a traditional fintech non-crypto provider one thing everybody forgets is that pretty much any fintech is still built on top of a lot of legacy crap so you know they're kind of inseparable from the brick and mortar banks and all the infrastructure that they have built out digitally. Mm -hmm. um, so PayPal can't really be PayPal unless they too have access to, you know, Swift and Visa and Mastercard and ACH and all that ancient tech. You know, PayPal is not a crypto solution. It predates crypto by a decade. So. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's so to, to a degree, their opinion may not matter because if they're banking, you know, again, going back to what does your stack say, if the banks and their stack say we're not dealing with someone, then PayPal has to comply. But at the same time, PayPal and other fintech companies kind of have the ability to act outside of government compulsion. So they don't have to wait for a sanctions list to kick someone off. And I think that's where the question is. It's like, at what point do these companies stop being kind of independent, um, you know, unbiased arbiters of truth, right? And decide, uh, okay, we're going to do some editorializing, decide who can and can't play. So, you know, PayPal recently, prior to all of this, was working with the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, to stop working with and facilitating payments for notable neo-Nazis and neo-Nazi groups. Um, likely, I think because they judged that those payments were likely to fuel some kind of violence towards individuals. So I don't think they did that under court order. That was just their own managerial yeah. decision. Yeah. Um, I think, again, the line is always somewhere. And at what point do you think that deplatforming someone financially was done more out of spite than out of, you know, a, a, a desire to maintain every participant's safety? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think the the... 
the the one world like again what, another what if because that's basically how how I think at this point is you know imagine if the U.S. was invading a country and then all these sanctions were placed on the U.S. Um, and the U.S. just went okay Twitter Google Facebook PayPal uh, Visa's Ameri- I think Visa's an American company like Visa yes. like all these U.S. car companies NASA uh, stop working with people who are not Americans. Like the the amount of damage that that would do, to like it, I, you know, like it it could totally be. It's a system that can definitely be abused, but I do think having that sort of moderation in any network is still very beneficial. Where you don't have, sure, you have one pl- major player, i.e., like governments and like the U.S. government, but you also have independent nodes in this network that can make their own decisions in the form of corporations who can. Okay. Without a doubt, being able uh-huh. to deplatform someone or something financially can save a lot of people from a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, as in the case with PayPal and neo-Nazi groups. However, the opposite is also true. So, in the same sense that, like, clamping down on free speech can, you know, you can make the argument that it saves people from unnecessary harm. I think, and I'm quoting someone else here, that the best antidote antidote to bad free speech is lots of good free speech. And in this case, I think in the payment space and fintech and crypto, just as yes, I agree, it can be used to do harm. It can also be used to do immense good. So have you seen how much money the Ukrainian government was actually able to raise through crypto donations? What ton I've heard. Yeah. I think it was like 30 or 40 million last I checked. And, you know, they were able to do this lightning fast, you know, at the speed of blockchain and do it with absolutely minimal fees. So last I checked, they were taking Bitcoin, um, Tether, Ethereum, uh, Dot, uh, you know, Polkadot's currency and Doge. So, yes, you can literally fund the Ukrainian government's resistance with Dogecoin. That is hilarious, but it's game changing. Yeah. Also, uh, you know, Gavin Wood, who was the... uh, uh, the founder of Polkadot and one of the original co-founders of Ethereum, uh-huh. um, he actually requested the government just to make a dot um, address to start one and to receive Polkadot, and he sent five million dollars. Wow! And you know, imagine how much harder it would be, even though they have set up traditional banking channels to accept uh-huh. uh, donations. Imagine how much more it would have cost them, how much longer it would have been, and you know given that days really matter to the resistance, they don't have time to sit around waiting for money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that sense, crypto did a lot more good than bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, well, uh, I, you know, if the more people kind of hear about these stories of, of, you know, Ukraine was able to fund their resistance through crypto, the more you're going to have the stories of, you know, people in the dark web use crypto to buy stuff the more these types of stories are going to kind of head out the way, which is going to open up fingers crossed some sort of mainstream adoption, but um, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I do think that, you know, the, just the, the, the one kind of note that I had on my end regarding this type of stuff that I was going to mention was I was talking to one of my co-founders and they were kind of recalling this one, um, this one discussion they had with an investor, which was basically the most, underrated or overseen or overlooked industry that's making a very very violent rapid like expansion um is is the community community building 
uh, industry. Yeah. And the one thing, the the one sort of appeal of a community building where everything is kind of interconnected, that we're like very similar to the way a lot of systems work, a lot of the global systems work, is the moderation happens based off of um, these sub communities that start forming. So, say for example, this is actually a, uh, an article that Substack came up came out with a while ago, which is community based moderation. Of if you have um, a massive community about writing and you're going to see genres breaking off into sub like circles of their own. But then of course, you're going to have that one single node, in this network that's going to be, you know, typing about conspiracy theories that no one's going to bat an eye to. So he's naturally going to be like weeded out of the system. Um, I wonder if any of those, any of these global systems that we kind of talked about are going to have something like that, where, you know, everything is interconnected and everything's working with each other, but the minute someone kind of goes off on their own way or does something very crazy, then instead of, you know, being cut off out of it um, because the system isn't designed to do so or something like that, it's just, you know, the, the traffic going your way or the attention that you once had is now gone. If that makes any yeah. sense. Um, I think people yeah, I mean, always find his audience. Exactly. And and I think like kind of as we grow into this like interconnected world where where a global system for everything exists, um, thinking about it a little bit optimistically in the future, will this be enough of a discouragement for future aggressions and wars, physical ones, like invasions? And will Russia kind of be an example for other countries that want to start stuff that will use... Like, well, Russia will be the example for any other company that wants to start a war, not to start one. Um, you know, not not to speak of another potential threat, but like, will this be enough of a deterrent for the CCP to leave Taiwan alone um, because they've seen the economic damage that they're happening and they already have the well, whole. Here's the thing: I don't think the Chinese want to take over Taiwan at the cost of wrecking their economy in the same sense that Russia has, because they have a lot more to lose just in dollar yeah. terms and opportunity. Right. Um, the thing is, you know, it's, this is a bit of a, um, there is a word for this that escapes me, but what, what Putin did was basically he allowed all his adversaries to accomplish their goals mm -hmm. when he tried to pursue his goal. So what, what he tried to do was he tried to take over Ukraine because he didn't want them joining NATO and having them at their doorstep. Like let's, let's imagine horrifyingly for a minute that he's actually successful at taking over Ukraine and installing a puppet government and just making it an extension of Russia. Well, then you're surrounded by NATO, which is exactly what you didn't want, right? Because now you share a border with a lot of these NATO states. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing there, especially with Putin's stupid assumptions is he wanted to fracture the West and all he did was he united the world against him. Who is publicly taking the Russian side of things right now? Not many significant powers. Not no any one. significant powers. No yeah. One. Even even the Chinese were like, mm. yeah, true. You know, that's true because you know the, the Chinese have their enemies, but they have never been universally vilified to the point where everyone cut them off. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's so, it, if. If anything, like it does seem like a promising thing of the entire world being connected because that way you literally, it kind of hits like a, this is a very stupid comparison, but you know, 
it's a, the equivalent of a financial analyst that just can't get into Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> like you just, you just can't, you can't deal and work and like you're missing out on so much data and so much business. It's just like, what's the point of it? You know, might as well just stop being a financial analyst. Yeah, so like what's, what's the exit here? Like you are just a worldwide pariah and nobody wants to deal with you and you're hated and reviled and disgusted. And you're even, even your own people hate you. You know, like mm-hmm. people like to draw parallels between Putin and Hitler it's so like Hitler yeah. had a lot of popular support. Putin does not. He didn't have anything. Yeah, he he doesn't have anything. And like you you just need to like Google St. Petersburg protest and you see like the celebrities, some of the oligarchs, a lot of uh just normal Russian citizens going, We did not want this. We never wanted this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So to anyone listening, we uh highly recommend that you go to the Ukrainian Twitter their official Twitter, make sure it's their official Twitter and find their uh, Bitcoin, ETH, DOT and Doge addresses and um, contribute to the resistance because, and this, you know, alluding to a thread that I actually put on Twitter a little while ago. So I have some friends, you know, common friends of ours in Kuwait who think that, you know, they really have nothing to do with this conflict and it doesn't concern them in the slightest. It's just, you know, far away place one versus far away place two and win or lose has nothing to do with me. And the analogy that I want to close with is, um, you know, they, they will point to other regional conflicts that have been brewing in the Middle East, North Africa region for many, many years, many years, and they're terrible and they're awful and they've extracted a horrific human toll. So I see it as, you know, we live, we all live on the same street in that part of the world on Mina street. And, you know, our, our house is in order, but the houses of a number of neighbors of ours here and there on that street happen to be on fire. I'm not belittling the fires. There are terrible fires and they will extract a horrific human toll and they're not good things, nor do we cheer them on or anything. They're awful. However, our entire street happens to be about a half a mile away from the world's largest like chemical refinery and gasoline storage facility. And Ukraine versus Russia is a fire happening on the perimeter of that. So if that fire were to burn wildly out of control and set fire to the facility and that facility explodes, it's going to wipe the map clear of anything that you could have recognized before the blast. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be the event of the decade. It will cause this massive contagion. Everything will burn and will be all anyone talks about or thinks about or works around for the next 10 years, which is why this is a more horrifying fire, just because of what's at stake. You know, you have nuclear madman versus NATO's doorstep. So, yeah. I think the, the the fact that like I'm here in Los Angeles and you're in Istanbul and we're having a talk and then I can get on like after this I'm going to get on my phone and talk to people in all different parts of the world. We're, again, like this is kind of the theme that I've been carrying throughout this entire episode, but it's an interconnected world. It's everything is everyone's problem. That is the best way I like to think of it. So something on this yeah. scale breaks out a war where a lot is at is at threat and like you have a nuclear power going after a country like Ukraine. Um, it's it's if we if we don't bat an eye, it's only a matter of time until they come knocking at your door, basically. Uh, you know, I am uh, I am kind of overlooking the Bosporus right now, and that was a point of tension a little while ago because we weren't sure whether the local authorities would open it up to Russian warships trying to enter the Black Sea. And to make it up to, so I'm a, I'm a stone's throw away from Crimea, you know, oh. I'm, I'm not that far away from where shit's going down. If you look yeah. at the map, 
Um, and oddly enough, it's like very quiet and people are grilling kebabs outside. Nobody, you know, but right. it's, uh, yeah, like you said, this is, everything is going to be everyone's problem, especially if this gets out of hand because, and um, referring to an episode of the uh, um, All In podcast, I think David Friedberg put it best and we need to wrap up soon, but, um, you know, this is, uh, but everyone's afraid of like a Franz Ferdinand moment. So ah. if, if you're not familiar with Franz Ferdinand, he was the um, Austro-Hungarian Archduke who was shot dead by a Serbian separatist or nationalist. And that basically set off World War I because of a, a war of alliances and everyone got dragged into it. So everyone's afraid of, again, referencing Friedberg, that you know some Polish tank or whatever is going to accidentally cross the border into Ukraine and then fire on a Russian tank and then the Russian tank fires back and then it crosses into Poland and before you know it there's a massive war. Yeah. So some new friends Ferdinand type moment. True. I think that's um, that's what everyone's kind of biting their nails over. It's just uh yeah, whether not only whether this war can be done soon, but it's yeah, whether it can be contained, I think. Well, for starters, whether it can be contained and also whether we can avoid um, just even contagion within Ukraine before it even spills over a border. But yeah. anyways, that being said, that's, that's I think, that's enough. <laughs> True. Enough enough uh, oral doom scrolling? Is that what we did just now? Yeah, basically, we did the podcast equivalent of a doom scroll. Have <laughs> a doom scroll. That could be that could be a great uh, name for this. The, your your weekly doom scroll. Um, but no, we'll 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 pick a lighter thing for next episode. Your weekly like, doom scroll hosted by the doom trolls. Doom trolls. <laughs> I was gonna say we should um, let's let's start out next episode with you talking about how many cats you came across in Istanbul. Like just start off on a good lot. note. A lot. Adorable ones. I saw I saw the one Twitter video you had. That was kind of cute, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm out. Anyways, see ya. Peace.